Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we have a very special guest on Entrepreneurs, Robert De Niro, one of the founders of Nobu Hospitality. I just knew it would work tremendously in New York. I had no doubt about that. Traditionally, in New York, you go to Japanese restaurants and they're nice and so on. And like here in London, in my experience, they're terrific, but it's not what Nobu does. Plus, a new interior style from Spain. We don't want it to look like any other interior design magazine. There's a lot of talent, especially in Latin America, that people is not knowing that. So we want to be the platform to introduce this new talent and this new creativity. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a very special interview from the entrepreneurs this week. We meet the three founders and CEO of Nobu Hospitality at the Nobu Hotel, London, Portman Square. Nobuyuki Matsuhisa, Robert De Niro, Mayor Tapper and Trevor Horwell. They discuss what makes a great welcome, how talented people ensure a consistent brand and their collective passion for redefining standards in hospitality. I just wanted to get a bit of a sense from you about warm welcomes. I remember when we spoke to you before Nobusanyu, you yeah. talked about this, Irasha, I must say, this concept of welcome. Yeah. And I want to just get a sense from all of you about what does it mean to get a great welcome? Well, the people come into the restaurants, you know, I like to say something, I don't want to be quiet. Irashemase means like a welcome, right? But the one customer asked me to, no, what means that the word Irashemase uh, is? I say joke. <laughs> Spend the money. So, <laughs> you know, now people understand. Also, immediately, so they go into the restaurant, so if you make the comfortable. So that's why I like to make, in the first step, customer into the restaurant, I like to make them feel comfortable. That's why we start saying Irashemase. And is that the same for all of you? What matters most when you arrive somewhere? Yeah, I think for me, even though some people don't understand what it means, because, I mean, it creates some kind of an energy. I think the whole idea of going to Novo is have great food and also have fun. So it's a combination that we're trying to create, and that's why people like it. It's, you know, people can even move from one table to another. So... When they come in and they hear the welcome, it gets him to the moon that you don't have to be very quiet here. It's not like a, not a, like a library. Place. Yeah. <laughs> and about so. that amazing energy, Bob, was that something that if we go right back to like 1987, La Cienega, when you first, I think, experienced the food, did you sense there was a different energy, something special all the way back then before this journey kind of really took off? The place, as soon as I started having the food and the whole experience was the same generally then as today. But what made you guys think, this needs a bigger audience, we need to go to New York, we need to go to the world? Was that, did you have that sense that early? No, I just, I mean, I just knew it was going to be, it would work tremendously in, in New York. I had no doubt about that. Traditionally in New York, you go to Japanese restaurants and they're nice and so on. And like here in London, in my experience, they're nice, they're terrific, blah, 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 but it's not what Nobu does. I said, this is, this will work. This is great. I hate to use this word, but it's, it's sexy. It's, uh, people have used it before, but it was, it was great. 
The great ideas always seem very simple. What about being the kind of steward of the brand and on a more day-to-day, Trevor, let me bring you in here. Are you very aware of that, that kind of energy, these values? They kind of seem to flow through all the premises. When you walk into Nobu Hotel on Portman Square, you can still feel it, even though it's one of the newer hotels. How aware are you of being the steward of those values? Yeah, I think, well, really, Nobu is about the people, people in the company and... Um, I've been going to Nobu for way before I joined Nobu. And, and the one thing there was that they, the people were the same everywhere I went. So there wasn't a high turnover of the people. So I knew when I was going there, I could call this person. And when I got into the restaurant, I felt at home. So it was that. And I think today the biggest challenge is trying to retain good people. But we do that. And people want to join Nobu. And, and I think that is is the key to Really, everything we're doing is we've got a consistency and the people, they have a professional pride in what they do. And that's really sets us apart from everybody else. And do you think that people are entrepreneurial? Do you need to have an entrepreneurial spark to make a success, whether it's in food or in hospitality and movies, whatever you're doing? Do you need to be entrepreneurial now in terms of having that, that spark, that hunger to be successful, to try new things, to take risks? You have to have some of that as well. But For me, as a businessman and as an investor, to start with, I'm having fun at the same time that I'm working hard to make the business successful, but I'm also enjoying it. So when I get up in the morning, I get a lot of energy because I'm enjoying doing it. It's not difficult. It's it's not like hard work. So I think what we created is going back to the energy that you have in the restaurant It's a combination of everything. It starts, of course, with the food. But then when we opened New York, we were the first restaurant, I think maybe in the world, that had fine dining with no tablecloth. In the beginning, people said, how can you do that? You need to have a tablecloth here. And Nobu and the team decided, no, I think it'll be nice. And also sharing the food. So that also creates an energy. So it creates the great fun that when you go out to an, an experience dinner at Nobu or lunch. Or indeed stay at the hotels. And what about this energy between all of you? You seem to have fun. Nobu-san, how, how do you guys all, all work together? I'm really intrigued by how the relationship has grown, changed over the years. What, 30 odd years now? Well, so first time I met Bob, you know, it, almost end of the 1980, and very famous director of Roland Jeffy, right? Roland, yeah. Yeah. Roland, yeah. yeah. And he introduced me to Bob. But first time I met him, I don't know what he do. But kind of the, I met the Bob, kind of the destiny. Now I can tell. But the beginning doesn't think about any destiny. But after 30, you know, almost 30 years, so still the business is keep growing it's because good partners and also Mayor, the Bob, and me, and another partners, we have very great, strong teams. So Bob and the mayor supported me, and then I followed to the mayor and the Bob. Everything's like a team, but also kind of the family. Maybe strange family, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we are... We are All families are <laughs> <laughs> We are the great teams. That's why that still the business keep growing. Right now, I appreciate for the distant peoples, and because I am a chef, I don't know business. But after, you know, open Pastor Nobu, so business... It's keep growing and also build strong another teams, corporate teams. 
So each restaurant has like a summary, noble graduate chefs or managed people's manager go there, then training the next generation teams. You know, it's a noble team. It's very organized now. The start like a family business, still the family business philosophy. But that's why people are very warm and friendly each other's, support each other's. And even me, the barber supported me, mayor supported me. You know, this is a great team. And um, I met these people's kind of a destiny. Bob, do you think Nobusan has changed much in those 30 years? He may, I mean, you, you both look exactly the same as you did, don't you? But yeah. Anything else, anything else different? No, it's a, it, well, people change, of course, but we all change together moving forward and are very grateful for what's happened with Nobu. I mean, we've just been very fortunate and lucky. And it's, and it's because of Nobu, it's because of him, especially... He is the one, but all of us in support of him. It's that simple. It's definitely, it's the jolliest dysfunctional family (laughs) that I've ever heard. Trevor, did you feel that when you joined, that you were joining a a family? This family metaphor seems to work so well. There's the extended family that look after the the different sites. Did you feel, I don't know, like an interloper? Were you made to feel welcome straight? (laughs) What was that like? I met everyone 25, 26 years ago, and we did the Metropolitan Hotel in London. So that was a start. But I think like what Mayor says, you, you need to love what you do. And it's about working with similar mind-like people. And when we talked about doing Nobu Hotels and so forth, we had many meetings and it was, it just clicked. And I think the, the one thing about Nobu is really the culture of the company. And you can't keep good people unless you have the right culture. And, and to me, that's what sets us apart from everything else. So like Nobu just said, you know, to me, life's about your next move. You can be at the top or you can be at the bottom, but you can soon go down to the bottom if you, you make the wrong move. And I think we, we've been very fortunate in the last 25 years to have consistency and, and we've followed our heart and we've worked with good partners. And, and that's why we're here today with 30 hotels coming up and 50 restaurants. It's very modest of you all to say it's just good fortune. I think you're pretty good at what you do as well. Let me just ask you a bit. One of the really important other values, I think, of the brand is about discovery, sharing, getting out into the world. And that's obviously been much more difficult over the last couple of years. What kind of a challenge has that presented? Not being able to travel. It's obviously hampered openings. Even the brilliant hotel we're sitting in has had a few issues. Has that been a challenge, man? Yeah, it it wasn't easy, and especially in the beginning, because... In the beginning, personally, I was scared of getting sick because people were just dying everywhere. And I was worried about that. There were no vaccines, there were no pills, there was no medicine to cure. So I had to stay in one place. But we, we kept working, especially on Zoom. We had board meetings on Zoom. We built restaurants on Zoom. I mean, this restaurant, in the beginning, we had a few meetings with the owners and, and the architect before COVID, and then during COVID, we finished it on Zoom. It was okay. It wasn't, wasn't so bad at the end when things got a little bit better. And this is actually the first trip to Europe that I'm doing in the last three years. And I used to go to Europe six, seven, eight times a year. So Good to be back with your old friends. And do you think it's underscored, Nobusan, in terms of the values that you talked about earlier, the fact that people couldn't sate those curiosities, they couldn't get out into the world, it made you realise how important what you do is, perhaps. I like always positive thinking. So this pandemic, 
we learned something from this province, you know, because almost three years, so even like finally after 13 months, we can do the opening ceremonies in Nobu Potoman Square. But after the start of the problem, we so much worry about all the people's working, the restaurant features. But right now, maybe may I say, business better than before the pandemic right now for us. Because, you know, my, my job is like, a, I never count money. Always I'm looking for quality food, quality service, how much people make happy. I like to stay on uh, my side. Always I think about another side. So this concept, I like people to make happy. So noble philosophy that basically makes happy the people's means success. So in pandemic times, we have a lot of patience, so much headache because we had the, our job, this one, you know, we did it. So almost open all over the world now start getting start. So that's why we start the traveling. I like to see now all of my families around the world. Let's look a little bit to the future. Bob, you've got your chamomile here. What's in the tea leaves? Look to the future. What well, kind of ambitions, dreams maybe for, for Nobu? We're moving along cautiously, carefully and prudently, if you will. That's it. I mean, what I think about things in general, you can have a plan basically where you're going, but you just can't foresee the outcome. You can't do it. You might like to do this and that, but at the end of the day, as long as you keep at it, do what's right, we'll see where we are. But so far, it's very good, and it should always be as knock on wood positive. Do you think, though, that you, in a sense, also, you kind of learn more when things don't work out and don't go to plan? You have to adapt. Has that been true through all your life and career, do you think? Of course. And then I, but you just can't foresee where you're going to, where you can kind of see you're going to be somewhere there, but you don't know exactly. As long as it's in that direction, it's all good. Keep moving forward. Yes. Like a shark. And Trevor, what about the kind of business plan? Because it must be very difficult to quantify these intangibles, making sure that it's fun, great direction of travel. How do you make sense of the, I don't know, medium term time horizon? Yeah, I, I mean, I think now, you know, our big focus is doing hotels with restaurants. And we only started eight years ago doing that. And now it's grown significantly, but we never thought it would grow as fast. But we're fortunate because I think today it's about the partners that you work with and the partners we're working with are solid. We went through a choppy time, actually, through pandemic, but our partners are still there. We still go to all our hotels and we, we actually doubled our inventory of hotels since February last year. So when you think about that, you know, people want to do more Nobu hotels. So before we were looking to meet with different partners, now we have investors coming to us. So for us, it's, you know, if we do three, four a year, great. Pretty exciting and, times. Uh, so we haven't said we want to do 100 or whatever, but we'll see what happens. Never know. Nobu-san, I mentioned that we did this My Last Meal interview with you before on Monocle, and you painted a lovely scene with your family gathered together. Yeah. For you gentlemen with the Nobu brands, if you were to all gather, I don't know, at one of the locations, maybe to eat one dish, whether it's here at London Portman Square or somewhere else, where might that be? <laughs> now, would you go back to, is it like choosing, you can't choose your favourite kids, right? <laughs> How, what would you pick? For me, I have to say, if I had to choose where to spend, uh, let's say, uh, a dinner, the last supper, <laughs> I would choose Malibu because I live very close to the restaurant. 
It's one of our most beautiful restaurants, and so I would choose Malibu. I mean, the food is somehow, thanks to Nobu, creating dishes that are special, that are great, and lots of chefs are copying what Nobu started, which is okay. It's better to be number one when people copy you than being somebody that copies the number one. So the food that he created is consistent, in every restaurant, people always comment, say, how can you create a menu, create food that if I go to Istanbul or New York or London or Malibu, the food is the same uh, and, and the same quality. So our customers, which are a lot of international travelers, and they, they know when they go to a city, when there's a Nobu there, and they know what they're going to get. So the, the food would be in Malibu or London the same, but I think because of what Malibu has to offer and a place on the beach, I would probably have my dinner there. To Spain now, where AD España, former editor Enrique Pastor, is launching this autumn Manera, a new interior style focusing on Spanish and Latin American design. For more on Manera, he spoke with me on the stack this week. Manera, it's uh, the meaning in Spanish, it's a way of doing things. And we say that after the lockdown and everything that's happening in the world, so we think that it's a new manera to look at the interiors, to think, to imagine how we want to live. So we've been a long time at homes and we've had time to reflect on that. So we think that there is a new manera of living houses and we want to have a new manera to tell how people is living and how to bring a color or to bring optimism or to feel well at home. So that's the main focus that we have in the magazine. And even it's a Latin word. So we are based in Spain and we have a strong link with Latin America. We will have editors there. So the main focus of the content in the magazine will be Spain and Latin America. And then we will embrace everything that is creative outside. But we don't want it to look like any other interior design magazine that are mainly focused in the U.S. or in France that they're doing very well. But there's a lot of talent, especially in Latin America, that people is not knowing that. So we want to be the platform to introduce this new talent and this new creativity. And by the way, just checking, which city in Spain are you based? Is it Madrid? Yes, yes, we're very lucky to be wonderful Madrid. Madrid wonderful Madrid. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's that the, there's everything happening here at this time. And as I mentioned, the link with Latin America is very strong because there's people coming for living and work here. And we have professionals just moving to Latin America to work and, and we're building a, a very beautiful bridge between the two areas. So it's, it's nice to be here. I love the focus on Latin America because I think especially you being Spain, you have this something very special. You have even a common language with so many countries in South America that are also interested, you know, in, in design interiors. And I think that's a great way and also to promote Spain, because as you said, you know, we do see a lot of houses from the US, from France, you know, it even ends up looking samey. And I think it's nice. And I think it's part of your career as well to showcase the best of Spanish talent as well. Yes, of course. And we think that we can, it's a very strong word to say, but 
we would like to become the ambassadors of a way of doing things and a way of living that can link with Spain, with the Mediterranean area, and also with Latin America. That, as you mentioned, there's a strong creativity happening there, and, and we would like to, to tell that. What can you tell us about the magazine itself? I know it's going to be a, a quarterly. Will it be like a lot of pages? And what can you reveal? Because I know when is the first issue supposed to be out? It will be in September, mm -hmm. probably beginning of October. And the idea of publishing a quarterly, it's because it will allow us to arrive to the newsstands with more pages. And we will have a strong focus because we want to link the house and everything that surrounds us with the cultural panorama. We will include also, I mean, like short fiction stories from writers inspired by iconic houses of Spain and Latin America. And we will give space for reading and for reading nice stories. And, and I mean, we will give enough content just for you to enjoy the magazine for three months. So, but we don't stop on the print because we would like to be on digital too. We would like to produce good content for, for the digital, just using the new language that it's sometimes it's very different to the print. And we'll have the website, a weekly update with five very nice, long quality stories. Then we will send newsletter to, we will do podcasts and we will use some of the social media just to be in touch with our audience. What about in terms of, of distribution? I mean, I think you said it already, but Spain, Latin America will be your focus. But I'm hoping, of course, that we have a lot of listeners here in the UK. I hope there will be a, a nice distributor that will bring uh, some copies over here as well. Yeah. I mean, our distribution will be Europe, mainly America, Spanish-speaking America, because the magazine will be published in Spain. But in the end, you will find six, eight pages with the main stories English translation. From my experience, I think that interior design and the visual will be very important. So you will easily understand the house because we will, I mean, we are not afraid in giving 16, 18 pages to our projects. So if it's good, you can have the idea of how the house looks like. We are adding this small part in English just for the non-Spanish speaking readers will will enjoy some some of the writing that we we are doing. And what's the format like of the magazine? Is it a kind of a, a normal size or slightly larger, smaller? What what can you say it's about the format? Slightly smaller. I would say it's only one or two centimeters smaller, but it makes a difference when you read it or when you have it at home. So and it will be published in a very high quality sustainable paper and will have a strong cover. So, I mean, it will have some of the codes of the book publishing industry, but at the end, we're a magazine, we publish information. I mean, in, we want to be a magazine. We don't want to become a, a, a book that just stands in the table and nothing happens. So we, we want to be a, a very lively magazine. And you said, you know, lively there. And I think that's what people perhaps expect from you as well, because some people think design magazine is just this kind of this very cold images, you know, almost minimalist, which is fine. But I have a feeling there'll be a lot of soul. It feels very intimate from what I've been reading about Manera yet, which is quite nice. 
Yeah, from the photographers that I'm collaborating with. So they have a very warm style to tell a house. So it's not like the cold, I mean, like the strict lines of the architecture. So we will have some, some life. We will include some people in there because sometimes it's interesting to know the people who sleep in the house and tells the story and how he did the project. So it will have this very intimate point of view. So I think you will enjoy and we will include as well. We're Spanish. We will include some sense of humor. So we don't enjoy life without laughing and without being a little bit, I mean, irreverent in our point of view. So I agree a hundred percent. And my final question is to you, do you see a space for a magazine or and a title like Moneda in the newsstand, do you think that's something that is needed, especially for, for the region you are? Yeah, maybe in LATAM, there is no, I mean, space for the designers just to, to be in touch with people and with the audience. So I think we will cover a, a good space there in Latin America and also in, in Spain, because you know that the print industry is becoming so little less, I want to say quality, but in the end, I mean, if you're based in a country, you have to deliver content that it's close to you and you have to tell what you can see, touch and feel. So to be very objective and to talk about the things that you see. So I think we will, we will cover a, a nice pace and a nice niche in Spain and why not internationally? Because I think things are happening here in Latin very very fast and very interesting and it's it's a good opportunity to tell the world about it you are listening to the curator on monaco 24. we spoke with our regular monaco daily panelist yasmin abdel majid on her new book an essay collection entitled talking about a revolution andrew muller spoke to yasmin at midori house he began by asking about one key essay which started life as a speech called Elegy for My Career, reflecting what is it like to find oneself at the center of controversy and the effect it can have on one's life. As I've often said to close friends and family, I wish it was a fight that I'd picked. I wish that when I had been in the position of being part of a big controversy or in the media a lot, it was about something that I genuinely cared about. If it was about a campaign that I had a goal or objective about, it would have been fine. But you kind of, you find yourself, or I found myself in this situation at the centre of a storm that went on for months and months, a confected outrage about something that I was like, guys, this wasn't the thing that I wanted to make my single story. You know, this was not the hill that I thought I was going to die on. <laughs> and yet here I am. Because if you can bear to revisit it, what actually was it? And I should brace our listeners for the fact that this is a nothing burger of absolutely <laughs> monumental proportions. The thing that really took me down in the Australian public was a Facebook post on a day sort of similar to Remembrance Day called Anzac Day in Australia, which sort of commemorates a particular battle in the First World War, Gallipoli. And on this day, usually there are marches and so on, and people say this phrase, lest we forget. And so on my Facebook page that morning, I posted lest we forget, and in brackets underneath, I said Manis Nauru, Syria, Palestine. Manus and Nauru, for those who don't know, are these sort of essentially the names of these prison camps or locations of these prison camps that the Australian government has set up to hold asylum seekers essentially indefinitely who try to make it to Australia. And then obviously Syria and Palestine are self-explanatory. And that was it. 
That was the seven words, the whole post. Mm. And off the back of that, I mean, I had a friend a few hours later who essentially said, you know, I think people might take that the wrong way. And I really, I remember responding and being genuinely shocked and sort of saying, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, how could you possibly take that the wrong way? I was like, are you offended by this? And they were like, actually, kind of. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. Like, that was not my intention. Mm. Let me take it down. The irony is I deleted the post and sort of said something like, I apologise unreservedly without actually looking at any of the comments underneath. And that I was s- probably wise. <laughs> probably. And I said to my friend, I was like, lucky I took that down before anyone saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Things might have got really crazy. Yeah. But the reason I, I wanted to dredge all that up was to ask you what being in the centre of something like that had taught you about how to actually, or if indeed if there is any way, to make an argument and change people's minds and get people actually thinking rather than reacting in, I guess, a media environment dominated by social media, which is all about encouraging people to react rather than think. So that happened in 2017, and I think the nature of public discourse, especially influenced by social media, has only gotten more difficult, really, Mm. to navigate. I think there's so much more noise. However, what it perhaps did teach me is a couple of different things. One is that it is actually possible to turn a narrative around if you are very, very clear about the objective that you're trying to achieve. I think that, as I mentioned up top, part of the problem for me was there was no particular objective or campaign or goal or anything that I wanted to push towards. If Mm. there was, that moment could have been used to get to a certain point to essentially reframe things, right? And I think so much of the trick or the strategy for organising and and winning, quote-unquote, the media game today is about are things on your terms? Is the discussion on your terms? Or are they being co-opted and hijacked, ultimately, by those in positions of power or those who would rather see you sort of buried? Like, in one of the essays in the collection talking about a revolution, for example, I talk about the idea that language has become the front line and the way that words like woke or identity politics or freedom of speech, these are all phrases that might have started in one place but now are used in a completely different manner. And so the trick, I think, for folks interested in progressive politics is how do you take it back or how do you literally change the language rules so it works for you? Which does bring me to the question of how your early career informed what you've ended up doing. Because, again, as I said, it's been a, a fairly eventful 20s you've had. You started out as an engineer. You worked on onshore drilling rigs in Australia. You wanted to design racing cars at one point. But when you start thinking about politics and about the culture, do you think that you're thinking about them like an engineer, that you're always wanting to take things apart and see how they work? I think I can't help but want to approach everything as an engineer, as a problem to be solved. I often describe myself as a recovering engineer, (laughs) right, because some of those edges need to be rounded off a little bit. But there is something useful about a systems thinking training, you know, an education that allows you to sort of go step by step and quite logically and rationally think, okay, there's this thing happening. How can we take it apart? What can we learn from it? Is there a way that we can approach this that is perhaps a bit more technical, maybe. Quite often what I do as well is I'll use scientific or engineering-based analogies to get people to think about how a social movement or to explain the sorts of things that happen in society. And I think there's something quite fun in being able to bring those worlds together, the science and the engineering world, with you know the social. Because ultimately, there are 
rules that govern things or that govern how society works. They might not be as rigid. They might not be like physical physics rules, but there are norms and trends and so on that if we can draw out that can teach us how we can move forward. I did want to ask finally, because it, I think in a weird sort of way, it's an essay that does draw everything together because it talks about a lot of your passions. One is engineering and the other is perhaps as, I don't know, seeing Australia from an extremely unusual perspective. And it's an absolutely joyous essay you wrote about attending summer nats, which I don't even know how to explain that. It's an enormous <laughs> gathering in Canberra every year with, I'm guessing, about a 98% tattooed male attendee driving mm-hmm. their enormous enormously lovingly souped-up vintage Australian cars. I don't know how or why they never renamed it Hoonstock, but (laughs) there's one for the Australians. But there it is. Is the petrolhead dream entirely over? Is there part of you that basically just wants to open a garage and do up Holden Monaro's all day? I bring this on on a regular basis with my partner, (laughs) and we look at how expensive it is to buy a shed or a garage somewhere in central London. At the moment, it's prohibitive, but, you know, that dream is always there. And from the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Russia's gas supply to Europe has been halted due to what Russia says are annual maintenance works and technical issues. Andrew Muller offers an alternative explanation. If you have never actually done it, you have probably at least considered it. When sensing that the axe is descending, either professionally or personally, made a declaration to the effect of you can't sack me, I quit, or you can't dump me, I'm leaving, and stomped off, assuring yourself that they'll be sorry, so there, before settling in to wait by the phone for their apologetic and conciliatory phone call. Usually for quite some time. It is possible, as of this broadcast, that Russia has executed a broadly similar manoeuvre vis-à-vis its energy supplies to Europe. Earlier this week, Russia's gas supplies to Germany via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline were halted for a putative 10 days for what Russia says is annual maintenance work. This follows reductions in gas supplies to several European countries, which Russia has blamed on technical difficulties, and the complete cessation of gas supplies to Poland, Finland and Bulgaria, which refused Russia's demand to pay in rubles. What with one thing and another, the world has learned to arch an eyebrow at blandly bureaucratic euphemisms when issued by Russia. Germany's economy minister, Robert Habeck, and international energy agency head, Fatih Birol, are among those who appear concerned that just as special military operation turned out to mean smashing up the country next door in a seizure of delusional hubris, so annual maintenance work may be a cover for sentiment along the lines of tanking Europe's economy to see how they like it. There are two questions raised by this prospect. One is, would Russia really do it? Really, seriously, actually cut off all its energy supplies to Europe? 
By which we are asking, is it imaginable that Russia, the Russia of President Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, would really do something petulant, vindictive and self-punishing in order to make a point, akin to a man sawing off his own foot and then gloating about bleeding on your carpet? The briefest scrutiny of the grand scheme of things will direct you quickly towards the answer, yes. Yes, Russia imaginably would. The second question then, and possibly, all things considered, quite an urgent one, is what would it mean if Russia did? The good, well, good-ish news, is that it wouldn't be quite the calamity it might have been had Russia pulled a similar stunt six months ago. Since Russia attacked Ukraine in February, occasioning swinging sanctions, Europe has been preparing for exactly such a retaliatory eventuality. A German Vice-Chancellor Robert Habeck called on citizens to reduce their energy consumption. The government also encourages utility companies to extend the use of coal-fired power plants. Right now, Germany has 70 such plants that run on hard and lignite coal. And another solution would be to extend the use of nuclear power. The country still has three nuclear power plants, which are supposed to be shut down at the end of the year. An industry group now says they could remain on the grid to reduce the dependency on Russian gas. Germany, for example, has already reduced its dependence on Russian gas from 55% of its consumption to 35%. The figure for Europe generally was 40% and is now 20%. This is a remarkably and commendably swift adjustment, if arguably one a good few decades overdue. Importing liquefied natural gas, or LNG, by sea from non-Russian players is easy the reliance on the pipelines. Germany hopes to have two LNG terminals operational by the end of this year. Spain is revving up one in Gijon, which has been idle since 2013. But the short term is where people, and pressingly voters, tend to live. And the short term, if Russia turns the taps off completely, could get extremely rickety. If you are listening to this in Europe in particular, you are very likely to have recently uttered a profanity and or blasphemy upon opening a household energy bill, and it isn't even winter yet. Russia may be betting that shivering Europeans will care more about their own comfort than the distress of any given Ukrainian and blame their own governments rather than Russia's. Russia may not be wrong. There is also the effect on industry and therefore on supplies of stuff and available employment options. Spikes in energy costs or shortages of energy would clobber sectors already struggling for Ukraine-related reasons – chemicals, steel, fertiliser. There are already reports of European factories reducing or suspending operations, even closing some plants, unable to compete with the Middle East and the United States. Americans are currently paying about a third of what Europeans are for natural gas. Again, Europe may not have seen the worst of it. One advisor to Germany's government has estimated that an abrupt cessation of all Russian gas supplies might reduce the country's annual output by 12%, or around 429 billion euros. That's roughly a 2008 financial crisis or a 2020 pandemic's worth. Serious people are having serious conversations about how energy rationing might work. 
Short-term pain, possibly severe short-term pain, is therefore likely. However, and though this may be little consolation to the many European households already at the limit of their solvency, there is the prospect of long-term gain, in the form of having to do a great deal less pretending to care what Russia thinks about anything, and a great deal less of giving Russia money with which it may purchase the means to terrorise the continent. In the last year or so, Russia's oil and gas exports to Europe have earned north of a billion euros every day. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to the curator who head to Lyon now, a city with a storied tradition in textiles, to see how the craft of silk weaving is being kept alive. A hilly neighborhood in the north of Lyon, Quarus, is filled with cobblestone streets and a rich history of weaving. Ramble along these roads and you'll notice the generous ceiling heights found in most of the ground floors of buildings. These offer a clue to the heritage of this area and the early 19th century, where weaving workshops were built to house large looms and the craftspeople who worked the machines. There were between 30,000 and 50,000 looms in the district. In all the buildings, there were uh, workshops in each floors. There were workshops, two or three workshops. There were a lot of looms. Just imagining the sound of... Yeah, yeah. Marie Guillaume there, a guide who has hosted tours of Sourie Vivante since 2017. The association aims to protect and share the history of weaving in the area. It contains one of the last remaining weaving workshops from the 19th century, made even more unique as it is one that produces trimmings. When the, uh, the weaving was very important in Quarus district, there were a few uh, trimming workshops, but uh, the majority was large weaving workshop. And we have uh, three looms, big looms for trimming. Jeanne Henriette, our ex-owner, she worked for armies, uh, for the church, and sometimes for um, decoration, for houses. 54 years, she worked with this loom and this loom at the same time. In front of me is a towering loom fashioned from cherry wood. And at the top, a jacquard mechanism, the early forefather to a computer and a bit similar to the system you might find on a music box. A series of punch cards tell the machine which threads to include in each line of weaving, allowing complex designs to be created. It's a binary system. Each time there is a hole. The jacquard mechanism analyzes that it needs to select the warp thread 
corresponding to the holes. So each time there are different holes to have different warp threads selected. This particular loom works to produce a metre an hour and is currently used for demonstration purposes. Marie does some final checks and replaces a bobbin of golden thread. Originally, these machines would have woven silk threads or others spun from gold or silver. Though times have changed somewhat since then. Nowadays, we use lurex. It's synthetic. So, let's go. Initially, a lot of workshops contained hand looms, but with the introduction of electricity in the early 20th century, many weavers embraced a new electrical counterpart, like the one you can hear now, that could weave much quicker. Electrical looms were sometimes fashioned from metal, but the vibrations they produced were a concern, and so they were banned from upper floors of buildings for fear they could cause damage. Nowadays... The looms are with metal a lot, so the sound is very different, very aggressive. I appreciate the sound of this loom because there is wood. Uh, It's like a music melody. This workshop is special because streaming is not the specialty of Lyon. A lot of people come to see how the looms worked. The sound emanating from these looms is quite something to experience. And it's a sound not many people may have a chance to experience. Associations like Sorry Vivant are rare gems, run by a small team and volunteers who safeguard the history of silk weaving in the neighbourhood by showcasing traditional methods and techniques in demonstrations and workshops for the public. If you want to ensure that spaces like this continue to survive and share this knowledge, it's key that we continue to support them where we can. For Monocle, in Lyon, I'm Maylie Evans. And on Toast Stories this week, Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, ponders the light and shade of the modern metropolis. A south-facing garden. When selling an English house with such an attribute, the estate agent will always emphasise this detail in their sales bump because a south-facing garden brings with it the promise of the sun's fulsome warming glow, conjures up visions of children splashing in a paddling pool, evening drinks on the terrace, the trees throwing long-limbed shadows as the sun finally sets. A south-facing garden sells homes. A north-facing one risks a house lingering for months in the estate agent's window. But when I wanted to put down some roots in Palma de Mallorca, our Spanish friends had a very different view. If you want your furniture singed by the sun, then face south. If you want to try and keep your cool, consider facing north. This week, London has basked, or should that be baked, in a heat wave. There's crisped leaves, hardened soil, parched throats, and in our office, the conversation has dwelled on the impossibility of sleeping in airless bedrooms, 
and whether it's the tipping point where British homes should be equipped with aircon, still something of a novelty in domestic settings in the UK. Soon, judging by our office, our homes could resemble those of Singapore or Hong Kong, where ugly aircon units were away on the outside walls of just about every apartment. But there is another route. Return to our past to discover some simple ways of being chilled. When you see photographs of Victorian and Edwardian London, you notice that in the summer, canvas awnings droop over windows like tired eyelids and that blinds are pulled down in shop windows to protect the bonnets or brocades. Places such as London knew how to throw some shade back then. Indeed, many houses still had Georgian window shutters that could be used to make a room dark, cool. Somehow, in a race for modernity, nearly all of these domestic cool tools were ripped out by doer-uppers, leaving homeowners no place to hide when the mercury rose brutally high. Net curtains, or shears, also vanished as modernism embraced the large window, the vista. Now anything that encumbered the view, made a room feel dark, was dismissed as grannyish. But as London begins to sense what global warming actually feels like, we need to reinstall some of these tools for shade, learn to love the fact that our homes have some dark corners where the sun never reaches. Sure, for now, the south-facing garden will remain an estate agent's friend. But a north-facing bedroom? Well, now you're talking. See the light. Rediscover your shady side. You are listening to The Curator. On today's show, bike lovers will be thrilled to learn that the leading global trade fair for bike business, Eurobike 2022, has kicked off in Frankfurt. Monaco's executive editor, Nolan Giles, was there. And join us on The Globalist. Well, the Frankfurt Messe is not the, the most beautiful environment, uh, but the bikes on show spread out across this insanely huge event they're, they're expecting a hundred thousand people the bikes are uh, incredible and uh it's a fair largely dominated by electric bikes emma what's your view on the e-bike phenomenon if they're beautiful i'll i'll hop on but what's generally the uh, what's generally the consensus there is everybody getting very excited about all this well, I think people are making a lot of money, and I think they're excited about that. It's, it's a properly booming industry, and everyone is trying their best to kind of figure out how they can carve their unique niche into this market. But, I know, for, for someone uh, with, a, with a design eye like myself and like yourself, Emma, like, they're not particularly beautiful. A lot of these uh, new kind of e-bikes have this, these kind of frames, which are, which are very chunky because they have to make use of a, a battery and you, you know with the speed that uh, i guess technology is moving at you can only imagine a lot of these products feeling a little out of date in the future so i was kind of drawn to products that you know looked <laughs> looked correct looked like a normal bike in a way and there's this incredible company from uh, taiwan called micro angelo super cute name and they've uh, he's an electric engineer the founder and they've devised a really special frame that's actually uh, quite small and quite, uh, you know, feels like a real bike when you ride it. So I, I was taken by that. But I mean, 
as an industry, it's it's really kicking off and you can really see it at Eurobike. You've hit a really, really important point there because every bike lover I, I know is so obsessed about the way their bicycle looks. I mean, the attention to detail is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it, I don't know whether it's a case apart. And, and, and how much are the designers of the new e-bikes actually bearing in mind that beauty is an enormous part of riding a bicycle? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point because if you look at the successful uh, e-bike brands, and I don't believe they were there, there's guys like Van Moof and Cowboy, They've really focused on a design-led product. They've thought sm- smartly about their, their branding, even their naming. A lot of these companies here, it's, it's kind of too obvious. They call themselves like something Volt or, you know, something Power. And it just, it doesn't kind of chime correctly with uh, traditional uh, cycling culture, I think. So there's, there's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a moment happening right now, a moment of reckoning. Um, but that being said, you know, I spoke to the director of the fair, uh, Stefan Reisinger. He told me that it's inevitable, basically, that in the future, around 70% of our uh, trips on bikes are going to be on e-bikes. So it's catching up. Make them pull their socks up, Nolan, and make them, make them design you know, be, be use, useful and beautiful, please. Um, but looking at the scale of this, I mean, this, this show has been in, in Friedrichshafen in the past, hasn't it? It's moved to Frankfurt. It's on an enormous scale. What does that say about the way that um, travelling on two wheels is, is now part so much of our lives, not least because of the pandemic? It says a lot. I mean, you know, Eurobike is a very famous event, uh, the world's best bike brand do go there. And of course, you know, they, they do have conventional bicycles there and they showcase the new, the newest brakes, the newest gears, all the, all of the innovation, in the industry, it's a, it's a proper bicycle nerd event and it's amazing. Um, but I think what's exciting in terms of this move to Frankfurt is that they're really starting to have a conversation about how, uh, I guess, mobility in cities is going to work going forward and the role of the bike in the city. Uh, so there was, for example, the guys from Deutsche Bahn, you know, the, the massive uh, state-owned train company in uh, Germany were there. And they were, they were really talking about, you know, the role that the bike plays in the city, how, how we can have these, they, they were demonstrating these super cute, um, like repair stations where people are encouraged to come to the train station just to re- use their equipment to, to, uh, to fix their bikes. They were talking about, you know, what is the future of uh, shared cycling in cities? How can infrastructure change in cities to be more accommodating for bikes? Because it's, it's going to have to going forward. I mean, obviously, there's, there, there is an impact on the planet, you know, in terms of making these e-bikes. Many of them are made in China and Taiwan. It's not, uh, it's not the cleanest business, but it is cleaner than cars. And I think looking forward, we do need to think as city planners how we can make our cities more amenable to bike riding. And to end the show, we have a nice recipe from the head chef of Lawsystem Place, a restaurant in London. He shares one of his favorite recipes. My name is Ben Murphy. I'm the head chef at Lawnston Place Restaurant in Kensington. We're a free rosette restaurant allocated on Lawnston Place Road. I've been at the restaurant for just over five and a half years now. And we serve a lunch menu and a dinner menu that are different, alongside a tasting menu also with... Uh, wine pairing to match from my sommelier team. The dish I'm going to be explaining today is a new dish that's been on the menu from last Friday, actually. It's cod, that is butter poached. The dish is also served with Isle of White tomatoes, which is perfect season right now. 
and also some caviar as a seasoning for the dish. In the kitchen, we set up a water bath, should we say. So we set the temperature at 48 degrees and we sit a container of brown butter into that water. So therefore the, the circulation of the fish being cooked gets cooked evenly. That gets cooked at 48 degrees for about 12 minutes, depending on the portion size of the fish. We use 100 grams. The rest of the garnish to go with this, so the fish is butter poached. You get two baby yellow vine tomatoes, which have been blanched in tomato water and then peeled. So we peel the skins of the baby tomatoes. Also two baby red tomatoes. And then we have a selection of sea herbs that go with this. So we serve it with sea lettuce, some saucy fingers, some sea persiline, and then we make an oil from lovage. So lovage is a, a type of sea parsley. It gives good depth, good earthiness. The oil is used to actually split the sauce. So the sauce that we use, we make a tomato stem water. To make this, we actually blend plum tomatoes. Just naturally, we blend them to liquid and then we bring the juice to the boil. We then take it to 80 degrees, which then separates all the pulp to the natural juice of the water. And then we pass it. So we put it through like a, a muslin and let it just drip overnight. So we extract all the natural flavors of the tomato. So this gets served with the cod that's been butter poached, the nice little baby tomatoes, and then obviously the sea herbs, which give good contrast and color. To top it off, we use a citra caviar as the seasoning for the dish also, because it's quite salty. That's the dish. It's really colorful. It's very new, so it'll probably stay on the menu for the next three to four weeks, I think, until a new idea comes to my mind or my team come up with something new. So yeah, we're constantly evolving, constantly bringing new things to the table, and obviously trying to push boundaries to be better than we were the day before. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Dewars and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>